This podcast is a presentation of Indianola First Assembly of God Church. For more information, please visit us online at indianolafirst.com. It's good to be here today. It's good to be here with you all. And uh, I can't wait to get into today's message. Um, you know, uh, most of you know that four weeks ago we started a series, um, or a few weeks ago we started a series, a four-week series, uh, that um, deals with the subject of apologetics. And apologetics is simply defending your faith, defending your faith. We live in a world and in a, a time and in a culture where for the Christian it becomes imperative that you learn to defend your faith. When you can't defend your faith, the outcome is Christians huddling in the corner somewhere, having their holy huddle, encouraging one another, which is fine, but the outreach stops. Because if, how many know if you go out in this world right now and you start sharing your faith, you're gonna be met with resistance. And you're gonna be met with uh, people's comments and people's questions and things that are gonna prompt you to either defend your faith or just say, well, if you don't believe that's, that's your business and walk away, which that's not really defending. So we need to be good at defending our faith and uh, not to be argumentative with it, but to always have answers to the questions that people ask. You know, nobody has ever been argued into the kingdom of God. Think about that. Nobody has been argued into the kingdom but giving a clear presentation of the gospel often involves answering questions that aren't always easy to answer. So we need to learn to defend our faith. First Peter 3.15, this has been our verse through this series, and it will continue to be our verse. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I want to put emphasis on that word, always be prepared. Always be prepared to give that answer for the reason of the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And so again, it's not an argumentative thing. It's not something that we just want to go out and argue with people. And there are Christians like that, and they turn more people away from Christ than they gather in. But there's a difference between defending your faith and being argumentative. And I think sometimes Christians, uh, the general population of Christians say, well, I don't want to be that argumentative kind. I don't want to be the kind that turns people away, so I'll just shut my mouth. Well, that's not right either, is it, church? We have to find the balance in a lot of things, and this is one of them. Being able to give soft, gentle answers that show respect, but give good, solid arguments without being argumentative. We started with helping people answer the question, who is Jesus? If you're talking with people, you're gonna, it's going to come up. It will come up, or you can make it come up. Well, who do you say Jesus is? Or why is Jesus so different? Or what are you going to do with the person of Jesus, saying that to somebody? Many people believe he was a good teacher, but can't bring themselves to admit that he was Lord of all, the Son of God. We talked about how there are really only three answers to this question of who Jesus was and who he is. He was either the greatest liar that the world has ever seen, he was either a deranged lunatic, or he was exactly who he said he was, Lord of all. And if you missed that first message a couple weeks ago, go back and watch it, online, or watch it on the website and, and, and uh, take that in because it's, it's, uh, there's really only three answers. In discussing the, the answer to these questions using critical thinking, plain logic, and just good old common sense, 
you will come to the conclusion that Jesus is Lord. The other choices just don't make sense. They're not believable. Last week, we got into how to answer the science community with all of their so-called proof that discredits the existence of God, the claims of Christ, and the Bible as an accurate, historical, factual book that is still relevant for today. The real problem for most scientists who try to prove evolution or discredit the Genesis account of creation isn't that they can't, or it is that they, they can't repeat our origins in a lab. They can't redo it. And truly within the science community, creation through intelligent design just isn't an option for them. Because to admit that there is an intelligent God would mean that they would have to answer to that intelligent God. And that's not something they're willing to do. But science itself gives us tremendous evidence for the truth of God and the reliability of his word. It takes more faith, church, to believe in random processes resulting in human life than it does to believe that we have been purposefully designed by a God who loves us and cares for us deeply. And today I wanna get into the question uh, about the Bible, the questions that come up about the Bible that, that always seem to come up when you're discussing your faith with people. People say, well, I don't believe the Bible. How many know it's kind of hard to share your faith with someone who doesn't believe in the source of your faith, which is the word of God? It's pretty hard. So the questions come up, well, I don't believe the Bible. How do you defend that? How do you give them an argument without being argumentative? How do you give them an argument or a reason why they can trust the Bible? And that's what I want to get into today. And there are questions that, are, uh, that, that come up are like, isn't the Bible too old to be reliable? What about all those errors and contradictions in the Bible? How can a book written by imperfect men really be God's true word? And as born-again believers in Christ, church, we believe that the, what the Bible claims, we believe that's true. We believe the word of God, folks. Some people look for a church that appeals to their, uh, their own little personal desires and I, if he does this or if, if they do that or if, if she does this or if the church as a whole uh, 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 tickles my ears to what I wanna hear, then I'll go to that church. But folks, that, that's, that, that's not the criteria for going to a good church. I tell people all the time, if you wanna go to a good church, find one that believes the Bible. This church believes the Bible. You can get mad at me for what the Bible says, that's fine, but I'm not gonna change that the word of God is the, is the, uh, it, it's the alpha and the omega, it's the end, it's the, it's the buck stops with what the word says, amen? Let's just face it, that is where we draw everything from, the word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine or reproof uh, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. And the translation here, leave the scripture up, given by inspiration of God, is from the Greek, uh, it's from a Greek word that literally means God breathed. So all scripture is God breathed, man wrote down what God breathed into him. And we believe that, that's, that's where we land as believers in Christ. We believe that the Bible is inerrant, and inerrant means incapable of being wrong. Understand something, I can be wrong, you can be wrong. Turn to your spouse if you have one and say, you can be wrong. 
It is possible. <laughs> Parents, turn to your kids and say, you can be wrong. Kids, turn to your parents and say, you can be wrong, right? It's possible. We can all be wrong, right? But scripture cannot be. It is incapable of being wrong. It is perfect. It is inerrant. It doesn't have any errors in it. It is solid. God breathed. And I, I know we believe that in this church, but I want you to understand how important it is uh, that we know how to defend it. I want to read to you a, a quote by a guy named Richard Kramer. He recently said this, the idea that the Bible's authors were safeguarded against error when inspired by God to write facts about science and history and scripture is a misleading and harmful concept that has been used to hurt people and is damaging to the cause of Christ. He goes on to say, few words in the last 30 years have caused more mischief than the word inerrancy in regards to scripture. There are a few Bible passages that seem to support the idea of God speaking it and humanity writing it down, such as God dictating the Ten Commandments to Moses and commanding Moses to write them down. On the other hand, God would have been, had to be pretty egotistical to dictate words to the psalmist to be read back as praise unto himself. Okay, this might sound like, yeah, run-of-the-mill skeptic, right? But this person is actually Pastor Richard Kramer, and he holds a PhD in systematic theology from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and is the pastor of Garden Lakes Baptist Church in Georgia. I don't know the man, I'm sure he's a nice man, and I'm not trying to throw him under the bus in any way at all. I don't wanna speak against my brother in Christ here, but when you cease to believe that the scriptures are inerrant, it starts you down a slippery slope of humanistic reasoning and false doctrines. The Bible is truth, folks. It's solid. It is truth, and it's what we believe. Our belief that the Bible is true and is inerrant is the anchor to our whole faith. If we can't stand on the foundation of the word of God as being completely true and inspired by God himself, then our Christianity begins to fall apart. And it's not like we have to go on blind faith. When you look at the evidence, it's hard to believe that the Bible isn't a book that was given to us straight from God. And don't miss the point of all this today. The Bible can be trusted. It absolutely can be trusted. It is a divine book, holy and inspired, which means we must come underneath of its authority and make sure that our lives line up with it. And again, we should be able to answer when questioned about it. But with a little effort on our part, Defending the word of God is actually pretty easily done. I want to go over those questions again. Number one, isn't it too old? And hasn't it been translated too many times to be reliable? It's just too old. How can you trust a book that that's, that's that old? How many have ever heard somebody say that to them? I know I have plenty of times. This is a statement, again, that I've heard countless times. How can you trust the validity of a book that is just so ancient? Let's start with the Old Testament. It's ancient manuscripts 
What are manuscripts? It's important that you all know this. Listen carefully. Manuscripts are written by hand and not typed or printed as in published. They, are, they were the first or the original writings, or at least as far back as we can go, the, the earliest handwritten documents, not published. They were, not, they were not pages as far as the Old Testament goes. We're not paper pages like we have today. Its manuscripts were primarily clay and wooden tablets. They also used uh, papyrus made from reeds and parchment made from animal skins that they rolled up into scrolls. Pottery pieces and, and uh, beaten metal fragments have also been found as uh, the, the means to which they would write by hand these original documents. So when you're talking about verifying any literary work whatsoever, and if its content has been accurately preserved or not, the evidence is all in the manuscripts, the original handwritten copies or handwritten copies of the copies uh, of the original ones. So Paul E. Little says this in his book, Know Why You Believe. He says, the work of the scribes with the scrolls, this is talking about Jewish scribes, all right, with the Old Testament, the work of the scribes with the scrolls was a highly professional and carefully executed task. For the Hebrews, it was undertaken by devout Jews with the highest dedication. Since they believed they were dealing with the word of God, they were uh, accurately aware, or acutely, I'm sorry, acutely aware of the need for extreme care and accuracy. He goes on to describe some of the habits of these professionals. They would wipe the pen clean before writing the name of God. That was a practice that they, that they engaged in. If they had to write the word of God as they were copying scriptures down, they would wipe the pen clean. Now, why is that important to the accuracy of scripture? Because I want you to understand, they took such care in everything they did. They were so detailed in everything they did. And that matters, right? These weren't just some guys that say, hey, let's copy the word, of down, the word of God down, you know? They devoted their whole lives to it. That was just one practice. They would also copy one letter at a time, counting the letters of both the original and the copied version. In some cases, when errors or discrepancies were found, they would destroy the, the entire copy. These guys absolutely believed that if they didn't copy it verbatim and it was wrong, that they would have to answer to God for it. That makes a difference. There was motivation, right? How many know that government agencies spend money like there's no end to it? Why is that? There's no accountability. What's the matter if, the, if there's an endless supply of money coming in, I can just spend it, right? I, I, I kind of think that about budgets sometimes. If, if, if in a church you budget the youth department, where's Pastor Don? Is he up here? Is he in here? Where does he go? He's here somewhere. I can't see him. There you are. Hey, you're wearing the same shirt as me. Nice job. Light blue is the anointed color today, I guess. So if you're, if you're wearing light blue, way to go. Way to go, Jerry. I see that light blue shirt out there. <laughs> but if I was to give Pastor Dottie a $5,000 or a $10,000 budget for youth ministry next year, he would be happy. And guess how much of it he'd probably spend? Isn't that how it is? And there would be accountability there that he wouldn't go over. But with government, it just keeps pouring in. It keeps pouring in. They don't stop. I think about this. It's not like that with this. There was deep sense of accountability because they had to answer to somebody if they did something wrong. They had to answer to God. 
They took that extremely seriously. By the way, I take that seriously too with what I preach. Because I know that I am gonna be more accountable to God than those that don't teach or preach. You want your pastor to feel that pressure. You know, you say, well, I'm gonna put pressure on him to preach this way. Well, that's fine, but it's nothing like the pressure that you feel as a pastor from God himself to make sure that you're doing and preaching and teaching what is right. These guys were incredibly concerned with that. And it's these kinds of practices that speak to the devotion that, that they had in copying every, not word, but letter. The earliest and most widely used complete copy of the entire Hebrew Old Testament dates around A.D. 900, or after Jesus was born, 900 years. It's referred to as the Masoretic text, written by Jewish scribes known as the Masoretes, or they were referred to as transmitters sometimes. These scribes were custodians of the Old Testament text from 500 to 1000 AD, and this text is still used today. Our current copies of the Old Testament are in remarkable agreement with when compared. There's no discrepancies. So just the fact that the Bible is old doesn't mean that it's not accurate. When you have people that were built into the culture, built into the society that would take that much care, and then you have manuscripts as old as 900 years after Jesus uh, was born that match almost perfectly with what we have today. And let's not forget that in 1947, the world learned about what has been called the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century. Caves were discovered in the valley of the Dead Sea, and in these caves were scrolls that had been placed into clay pots and sealed for preservation. From these scrolls, we know that a communal society operating much like a monastery had this as their home. They made this their home. And this community called a, um, a Qumran existed from about 150 BC before Christ to uh, 70 AD or after he was born. The, the people in this culture spent their time working their fields and studying and copying the scriptures. That was their whole life. From these documents, it's easily deduced that the Romans were coming to invade their land in 70 AD. And in reaction and preparation for this, they put their leather scrolls into these clay jars and hid them in the caves or the cliffs on the west side of the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Amazing, amazing discovery. The caves, jars, and scrolls survived and were undisturbed until some young goat herdsmen found them in the spring of 1947. Isn't it amazing how God just took care of those things? Because when they first found them, the, the, the science community, the archaeological community, many of those uh, scientific-type communities were excited because they thought, at last, we're going to finally prove that the Bible isn't true. Oops. Oops. Because as they looked at them, the evidence, the manuscript evidence that we already had was being proved and it was overwhelming. These Dead Sea Scrolls contain the earliest manuscript copy of the complete book of Isaiah that the world now has. They also contain fragments of every book in the Old Testament except the book of Esther. But the amazing thing was how the Dead Sea manuscripts matched that Masoretic text verbatim. And you're talking about thousands of years between 
it proves that the society of people within their culture that were taking very careful uh, uh, steps to preserve every letter of the word of God did it incredibly accurately. It proves it. Isaiah 53, for instance, when you compare the one that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls to the ones that they have today even, they yield only 17 letters that were different. 10 of these were just changes in spelling and, and the, the meaning completely unaffected. Four of the letters were minor uh, uh, changes merely in style. They didn't change the meaning whatsoever. And then the three uh, remaining letters that were different were different uh, because they added a word. There was a word that was added and it, it was a word that was a three-letter word that meant light. And, and actually, just to, just to show you what it was, they, they shall see was the, the version we had and the version that they have in the Dead Sea Scrolls is they shall see light. Not much difference in the meaning. In fact, light could even mean you can see because there's an illumination. And so when you get down to the nitty gritty, there's no difference and I don't want to bore you with all the details this morning, but the fact of the matter is that there is no other book in history in the, in the world that has even come close to having the manuscript evidence that the Bible has. Not even close. We have faith and we believe, but even without faith, the evidence is overwhelming on the side of this book being historically accurate and reliable. The New Testament manuscript evidence is even more overwhelming. That was Old Testament. The New Testament evidence is even more overwhelming. Uh, we now have 5,300 known Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, 10,000 Latin Vulgate, and at least 9,300 other earlier versions. There are also 24,000 manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament in existence. These are ancient ancient documents that were handwritten by people who took great care in making sure they were preserved. And we have tons of them. And I repeat, absolutely no other documents of antiquity even begin to approach these kind of numbers of manuscripts. The, the, the Iliad by the Greek poet Homer is in second place. It has 643 manuscripts that survived compared to the thousands upon thousands that the Bible has. And this means that if you want to check to see if today's versions are the same as the earliest manuscripts, you can do this with the Bible with a greater degree of confidence than any other book known to mankind. Folks, I want you to understand something. This, it gets into deep stuff when you start studying this. And I'll give you some, some stuff later that you can get into if you really want to go deeper. It's kind of hard to preach that stuff because you, you see people nodding off, you know? But it's unbelievable how many things that we believe about ancient culture based off documents that were found and there's hardly any manuscript evidence at all. Maybe a little. And it's fact. But the Bible, which is overwhelming, I mean, just unbelievable numbers of manuscript information and evidence, they question. It doesn't make any sense. When you compare it, it's, 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 like, it's not like the scale going like this. It's like, boom. I mean, it's just that, that marked. It's so unbelievable. And you know, God is a big God. He made sure of that, didn't he? He absolutely made sure of that. So that it wouldn't, I mean, I, I know we, we believe by faith. It's all on faith. But he wanted to make sure that for the doubter, they would have some evidence too. I, I like, I like the, the, the scenario where, where or the, the conversation Jesus had with um, 
Doubting Thomas, he gets that bad rap, right? Doubting Thomas. Maybe, maybe Thomas was just a little bit of a skeptic. But what did Jesus do? Did he step back and say, no, you better believe or, or you're not gonna be in, in, in my kingdom? He didn't say that. He said, go ahead, feel the holes in my hands and my side. He answered the skeptic, didn't he? Here's some proof. Nothing wrong with us doing the same thing. Johannes Gutenberg. He invented the first printing press in the mid-1400s. And up until this point, anything printed in bulk was carved maybe into wooden, uh, uh, into wood, uh, like, uh, oh, what do you call them? Stamps, if you will, carved into wood and then stamped. Gutenberg used metal letters that were changeable and reusable, and this changed the course of civilization forever. The first book he printed, the Bible. And this was done because of the importance placed on this book. I believe God had a hand in that. The first book ever published by a reusable uh, printing press where you could change the type and reuse it, the Bible. And since then, no book has been in circulation more. It's the world's all-time bestseller. That's amazing, isn't it? No book has, has been translated into more languages which actually makes it more difficult to lose original meaning because you can always go back and compare and make sure it's right. It can always be checked and rechecked even across those language barriers. As of 2005, at least parts of the Bible have been translated into 2,400 of the 6,900 languages. That doesn't seem like that's enough because there's a lot of languages out there, but understand there's a lot of languages that are barely used or rarely used or just a handful or a small, small group of people use them. The, the truth is this, 98% of the world's population can read this book when available to them because it's put in a language that they can speak. And by the way, no book has ever come under the scrutiny and the criticism that the Bible has come under, even to the point of governments attempting to destroy it. It's been banned, it's been burned, it's been outlawed, and yet it still flourishes in its circulation. Science has tried to prove it wrong with no success. The more they learn and discover scientifically, the more they find out that this book is true and what it says. You know, you, you think about these things, there's something special and unique about this book. And even if you're talking to a skeptic or someone says, well, I don't believe the Bible, it's just, it's too old, it's written by, by, by men that lived too long ago and it's not reliable today. It's not, it's not a, a something, it, it's just not reliable. It's not relevant. When you come across those people, start talking about the uniqueness of the Bible. They cannot deny that it's unique, that it's unbelievable, and, there, and there's a reason for that. The Bible has also had incredible influence on literature too as a whole, more than any other book by far. Cleland B. McAfee writes this, I love this, if every Bible in any considerable city were destroyed, the book could be restored in all of its essential parts from the quotations on the shelves of the city public library. It's quoted all the time in books. Another question you may run into, what about all those errors and contradictions in the Bible? First of all, I want you to know what I say when someone says to me that the Bible is full of contradictions. I say, name one. Every time, I say, name one. 
And never in 30 years of sharing my faith has anyone ever been able to give me one. They just heard that it has contradictions. They just believe it has contradictions. It usually just exposes the fact that they've never read the Bible. Or have completely misunderstood it. And the real reason that they can't give me any contradictions is that there simply aren't any. There just isn't, when you understand how it's made up and how it's put together. I wanna give you some resources this morning that will help you defend against this question and questions like this. And I knew this was gonna be a little heavy this morning, hard to maybe listen to. Are you you having a hard time so far? No, thank you for being nice to me. So I thought I'd throw you a video, and, and this is one of the resources you can use, and I'll talk about it right after the video. People love to say the Bible is full of errors and contradictions, but the truth is most of them can be pretty easily resolved with a little common sense, honest investigation of the scripture, and the application of a simple method we're about to talk about. So, let's do this. Let's tackle the alleged errors issue. We'll do that by using a method I like to call a simple C. S. Spelling. That's right. Many of the so-called errors in the manuscript are simple variants in letters. Say you have one manuscript that was translated from Greek into Old English and another into American English. Well, the English translators might write down theater with the R-E ending, and the American team might write down theater with the E-R ending. Now, that's no error, my fellow thespians. It's a variant in spelling, so that's that for that one. On to the M. M is for mistranslation. This is when the original word might not have been translated to the new language perfectly or something along those lines. you got to realize that sometimes there's not a perfect word equivalent at the time of translations or that the translator simply had a slip of the pen or used a word that perhaps could be translated in different ways. Context and comparison solves this lickety split. For instance, Leviticus 11, 13 through 19 says, And these you should regard as an abomination among birds. The eagle, the vulture, buzzard, and bat. Folks go nuts on this one. Bats aren't birds. Bats aren't birds. The Bible is wrong and can't be trusted. Come on. First of all, they didn't have the same animal classifications back then, and the original Hebrew word translated bird here is auf, or however you pronounce that. And although correctly translated bird in many places, it also has a broader meaning like having wings or winged creature, which would, of course, include bats. This is all settled pretty easily with a little looking and thinking, I'd say. Moving on to P for perspective. Sometimes, the testimony of two people can seem contradictory, but when you pay close attention, it might not be that way at all. Quick example. Say there was a car parked in the middle of the street. There's a person on the right of the car and a person on the left. The person on the right says the car door is blue and there's a baby in the back, and the person on the other side says the car door is white and there are two babies. Now, how can this be? These ferocious liars can't be trusted. Now, wait a second there, Jimmy Conclusion Jumper. Fact is, the car could be painted white on one side and blue on the other, and if there are two babies in there is one, right? So both are actually illuminating the fullness of the scene. Remember, the guy on the right didn't say there was only one baby, he just mentioned one. You gotta pay attention to the language and perspective, people. Sometimes the whole truth is in the details, you follow? L. Literal versus figurative. It's pretty clear that the Bible contains different writing styles like poetry and narrative and uses different parts of speech like similes, metaphors, and analogies, pretty much like we still do today. So if we really want to interpret correctly, it's our job to realize and understand the difference. How, you ask? Great question. By looking at the immediate context using our noggin and comparing it with the rest of Scripture. That way we understand when Jesus says in John 10:7 that he is the door, he doesn't mean he's a wooden rectangle that swings on hinges. Need I say more? Finally, C for context. This is the biggie, folks. I'd say most alleged error issues arise when people don't acknowledge the proper context of the verse, they quote only part of it or purposefully misuse it. They might say John 3.16 says, for God so loved, but they say Deuteronomy 16.22 says, the Lord your God hates. Now, which is it? Does he love or does he hate? Well, you know, this is silly because the context of John 3.16 is about God's love for people and the Deut verse is talking about his hate for pillars. You know, if you hack, twist, and misquote everything, you can pretty much make it say whatever you want and that's not really searching for truth. So, there you have it. With a little effort, honest investigation, and application of the simple C method, the idea that the authority or inerrancy of the Bible is in any way diminished due to errors has been debunked. Adios. 
Wow. Yeah. So I know that guy talks fast. So what you need to do is, is download Reasons for Hope. It's an, app, it's an app you can get. Reasons for Hope. Just type that in your app store or uh, what do they call it? I, I'm not an iPhone guy. App store there too? Okay. I guess we call it Play Store in the Android world, don't we? Play Store and and uh, iStore, no, App Store, any other way, you know what I'm talking about. Download that, and in there you'll find a, a menu and you can find debunked videos. They have tons of them, I think there's over 20 of them that talk about all these kinds of things that help you defend your faith. These videos are also youth. I got a youth in here, some teenagers. Where are the teenagers at? Up there, got one here. Are you a teenager? You're so little. Teenagers up there, is there a few? Raise your hand if you're here. All right, see ya. You're not a teenager? Raise it up. Okay, there you go. You can take these videos and share them with your friends on social media. Adults can do that too, by the way, but some of you might not know how to do that. <laughs> Ask one of them on how to do it. These are tools that are at your fingertips. I mean, if you don't want to come up and, 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 and study all that stuff out so you can spit it out like that guy did, just show them a video. There was one, I think, in there about uh, how did... If, if the Bible's true, how do, you, you're going to tell me that Noah fit all of the animals in the ark? And it explains perfectly how he did it. Tons of questions answered in that. Debunked videos by uh, uh, Reasons for Hope. Reasons for Hope. So just type that in and, and download some of those. You'll love them. Share them. Put them on Facebook. I mean, Facebook's good for something. It's not good for much, but at least it's good for that, right? Some of you laughed. Some of you didn't like me saying that. There's also a, uh, a website called truelife.org. Uh, you might uh, know, have been here before, but truelife.org is, is a, uh, something that we actually subscribe to. So if someone f- comes upon that, that, that uh, uh, website and they're searching for a church, they can ch- put in their, their zip code and they'll find our church. Um, but it is full of videos that, that deal with defending your faith and talking about different issues of, of today that... that answering questions that might be hard for you to answer. I think it's important that you know, though, and and in this section we're talking a lot about, or at this point too, contradictions and uh, mistakes in the Word of God. There just isn't any. And everyone that says that there is, they can be explained why that is not true. Uh, The Book of the Month, More Than a Carpenter, is a great resource if you want to study this out more. Um, Check out another book by Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, or another one that I love because it's more of a reference book and uh, has anybody read more than a carpenter already and you found it to be kind of heavy? Okay, plow through it, read it twice. It's not, that, it's not that tough of a book. But if you want more of a reference style book, get a Ready Defense by Josh McDowell. Then you just turn to the page you want and it just gives you kind of, kind of streamlines it for you. But what a great book that is as well. And all of these books, they contain factual, evidentiary information that will help you find the Bible, uh, defend the Bible, not just find it, will help you defend the Bible and its truths. And it's important that we do that as Christians. Um, Number three, how can a book written by imperfect men really be God's true word? It's a question I've heard a lot. It's written by men, wasn't it? Well, then how can it be God's word? Men 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 aren't perfect, so how, how can it be perfect? First of all, let's look at the makeup of the book as a whole. This speaks to its uniqueness again, but it's 66 books put together, right? Divided into Old and New Testaments, we know that. It was written over a 1,600-year time span by over 40 authors. These authors were from all different walks of life, and they wrote during different situations and circumstances. 
There were kings, there were peasants, there were philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars, and others made up those 40 authors. Some of them wrote while in the wilderness. Some wrote while in the pits of dark dungeons. Some wrote while enjoying the surroundings of a beautifully adorned palace. Some wrote while traveling. Some wrote in the middle of war while others wrote during peaceful times. Some wrote in the heights of joy while others wrote in the depths of sorrow and despair. And how many know that when you as even an individual yourself, just you are going through all those different things in life, that your mood changes that your way of seeing things changes, that your way of thinking about things even changes depending on what you're going through, the circumstance and the situation, your upbringing, all those kinds of things. Then you have the fact that it was written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And its manuscripts were written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And all of this goes to the point that this book, with all of its varying elements, time, authors, political circumstances, moods, geography, language, culture, and economic differences in the authors, this book, with all of those variants, this book flows together in perfect harmony, never contradicting itself, even though it deals with hundreds of controversial topics and subjects. Actually, the Bible, and this is an amazing thing, especially when you think about it being written over 1,600 years and then all of the differences, it really only has as a whole one main theme. How is that even possible? And the theme is the unfolding revelation of the redemption of mankind. And this is basically or actually incredible evidence. It's incredible evidence that the Bible is God's true word. You can take any two people in this room Two that are from the same town, attend the same church, make basically the same amount of money, had a similar upbringing, may, e- may even uh, have the same sort of career and find marked differences in how they think about certain topics. Whether controversial or not, the Bible has none of that. That is phenomenal. Another piece of evidence to prove that the Bible, though written by imperfect men, were inspired to write the true word of God as his Holy Spirit breathed it into them is the fact that hundreds of prophecies of the Bible contain, that, it, that the Bible contains have been fulfilled. Messianic and historical prophecies. There are approximately 60 major messianic prophecies and 270 ramification-type messianic prophecies that were fulfilled in the one person of Jesus Christ. He fulfilled them. You say, well, big deal. What does that matter? Well, understand, these prophecies were spoken at least 400 years before he ever came on the scene. How long was 400 years ago? Quickly. Pastor Jared, you're the smartest guy in the room, right? 400 years ago. 1,400, when they invented the printing press, right? Okay, so about 1,400, 400 years ago. The prophecies that were written in the 1400s, we'll say that, just to bring it up to date, I am now fulfilling all of them by just living, by just existing. It's exactly what happened with Jesus. The prophecies were spoken at least 400 years previous, and many of them even more than that. And yet Jesus, by being born where he was born, well, how did he control where he was born? He fulfilled whether they were major or not so major, 300 in some prophecies? That's amazing, church. 
That's amazing. It's been proven using the science of probability that in order for one man to fulfill just 48 of these prophecies, I don't know why 48, but that's the number that they came up with, that the chances just to fulfill 48 of them just by existing and living your life and being born would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. This doesn't even take into consideration that all these prophecies, again, were spoken of Jesus at least 400 years before he was born. The only way the scriptures could predict the details of Christ's life is that they were given to us by one master mind, God himself. He is the only one who can see all of history, past, present, and future, in one glance. He holds it all in his hand. He is the only one who can do that. He's an eternal being. The Bible is divine. There is no other explanation for this than that. Another point of evidence is found in the teachings of the Bible and how they constitute the highest moral standard known in all of human history. I mean, it's known to mankind. It is a standard that is so high and so holy that man can never reach it without divine help. The Bible sets itself apart from other books by presenting us with a God that has such high standards that it's impossible to reach him. But then he turns around and gives us the way to reach those same standards. Romans 3.21 says this, But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. His righteousness becomes our righteousness, church. That's awesome. No other book talks of such great righteousness. Carnal minds can't even conceive of how righteous the righteousness of Christ is. How could man conceive of a story like that? Well, we serve a God that's so holy that we can't even get to him, but, but here we are, uh, that same God sent his only son to die for us, and now through him, we can own his righteousness or have his righteousness be our righteousness. I don't even know how man could conceive such a thing. We know it, we believe it, yet still find it hard to comprehend it. This is one truth. A righteousness from Christ has changed. The righteousness from Christ that we get by accepting him into our life has changed the lives of millions of people. You want evidence that it's not just some old book, but that it's a book that's divine, that was really inspired? God breathed it into men and men wrote it down. You want real evidence? Then explain how, and this is, this is what I always go to. This is your go-to argument without being argumentative, right? Explain how one book through the centuries has changed, transformed so many lives, millions upon millions. It's transformed whole nations, how does a secular book, how does a humanly created book or, or a book sourced in humanity, how does it do that? It doesn't. And there isn't one that ever has that's changed whole cultures. I read the scripture earlier. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. What does that mean, God breathed? Everybody close your eyes for a second. And I want everybody to take a deep breath in and hold it.
breathe when you need to. By the way, if you've got a car full of kids and you want them to be quiet, just have them do the, do the breathe game where they have to hold their breath, right? All of a sudden, you'll have at least maybe 20 seconds of silence, which is really nice. None of us here can go very long without breathing or our lives would be over. I mean, we think about, you can go without food for a long time, right? You can go without water for a while, not very long, but you can't go without breath, just minutes. Just minutes. It's our method of taking in the oxygen that we need for life. God is not flesh that he needs to breathe. I like to think of this God-breathed statement as God imparting or instilling within the Scripture spiritual oxygen. He breathed the Scriptures into men, and the Scriptures are full of that spiritual oxygen. The life of God himself is within the, the pages of this book. Our spiritual being is fed and is supplied with the spiritual oxygen that is required for our continued life. I want to, and I want you to connect this scripture to another one. This God breathed, all scriptures God breathed. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. God the Father created you and me through the word. Who's the word of God? It's Jesus. When Jesus came to earth, it was the word of God made flesh. He is the word. John 1.1, 1, in the beginning was the word, Jesus and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus was with God, and he was God. The word of God, being Jesus Christ, you, you can't separate them. He is the word. What's my point? Well, God the Father created you and me through the word. He spoke the world into existence. And he also gave us the Bible, which is his God-breathed word to given man. Do you think that these two things are connected a bit? Maybe, just, just maybe? I think God wants to continue to create you by molding and shaping you into his image. He does this by and through his word. There's something creative about it. When you began, he spoke things into motion, didn't he? That's what started all this. We talked about last week. God spoke, bang, it happened. Big bang theory, right? He spoke it all into, into existence. The Bible talks about him breathing out stars and creating. And, and what, what, what that is, is he spoke it and things appeared. And we know that and we believe that. But he continues to create in you what he wants to create in you through his word. Creative word. It creates holy desires within us. It produces abundant fruit in our lives. It changes us and shapes us into Christ's image. It is our very foundation of everything we are as Christians. And I, I can't talk about the word of God, even in an apologetic sense, and trying to defend it to others who, because who, I, I know you all believe it, but how many could use a good, a good uh, maybe, maybe engage in this exercise, maybe today sometime where you go home and you blow the dust off of it and start reading it again? It's so important. You know what I believe? I believe most people follow this that don't believe the word of God is truth. I believe one of their greatest, one of their greatest arguments 
is that if it's so true, how come so many Christians don't read it? The people that claim it's true don't even read it. Why would I read it? Folks, I, I'm not trying to come down on anybody today, but we have the book of, I mean, it's this life-giving book. It's our source for everything, and we don't dive into it. And folks, there's a million ways to do that. Well, I don't like to read. I don't know how many times I heard that. If you don't like to read, grow up. That's what I used to say in second grade. I didn't like to read. I'm sorry. If you can't read, fine. Listen to it. If you hate reading or you don't have any time, adjust your schedule. But if you don't have any time, even after you adjust your schedule, listen to it. You can listen to it online all day long. You can get the little app, D-A-B, right? Daily Audio Bible. Who does that? Daily Audio Bible is awesome. He'll read a little portion of the Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs every single day. And in one year, you'll have the whole Bible read. It takes like 20 minutes a day. No big deal. You can't give God 20 minutes a day? I'm getting kind of preaching now, aren't I? Folks, if we don't read the word, if we don't embrace it, if we don't make it the most important thing about our faith and about our lives, why should we expect anybody else to believe it? See, you can't, you can't lead where you won't go. Let me say that again. You cannot lead where you won't go. You can't convince somebody to get into the word and read the word when you're not in it yourself. Because when you say that, there's no anointing behind your words. And folks, I'm telling you, there's so much evidence that the book that we stand upon, our foundation, our, is just the absolute word of God. It is truth. Manuscript evidence. Uniqueness about it. Life's changing. We can go on. I went over a lot of it already. But if we don't get into it, none of it matters. I want to pray today. I'm done preaching. If you brought your Bible here today, would you hold it up in the air? If it's on your phone, hold your phone in the air. It's becoming more popular, isn't it? I love Bible on the phone. Love that. Hold it up there. You got it? All right. Lord Jesus, I want you to pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, I commit to you that I will become a person of the word. I will read it, listen to it, saturate myself with it because it is truth and I believe it. I will defend this word by answering any question that comes against me or it. I love you, Jesus, and I commit to you today that I will do this like never before. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First Assembly of God podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest message.